you please stand with me as we read the Word of God together and open your Bibles to Psalm 131. Psalm 131. Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Amen. Pray with me. Our Father and our God, we humble ourselves before you. And we acknowledge that we have no right to be proud. We acknowledge that you hate arrogance. Father, we also acknowledge that we know so little. There are so many things that we do not understand. And for this reason, we humble ourselves before you, the God who knows all things. Father, we compose and we quiet our souls. We are like a weaned child resting against his mother. Father, we rest in you. Right now, O oh Father, we surrender our lives to you. We cast our cares and our burdens upon you. With all of the pressures of life and the stresses of life, we give them to you. Father, we thank you that you have given us hope. You have given us hope in yourself. And as we have just sung, hope in Christ. We thank you for the power of the gospel to save sinners like us. We thank you for your saving mercy, your saving grace. We thank you that you are for us and not against us. And from this time forth and forever, oh God, help us to hope in you. It is a privilege to be able to meet with your people, to worship you, to have your word before us, to sing to you, to give to you. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us to worship you rightly and acceptably in spirit and in truth. Father, may your word go forth this morning with power. May you build into our minds 
hope. May you grow our faith in you. May you strengthen our trust in you. May you increase our joy in you. Father, you are our highest good. And we thank you for the assurance that you do all things for our good. You are good and you do good. Father, we bless you, we honor you, we worship you, and we pray for your help. Minister to us by the power of your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Today is July the 30th. And if you were like me, July the 30th is just another ordinary day on the calendar. But for Johnny Erickson Tata, today is anything but an ordinary day. It is the 50th anniversary, 50th anniversary of a tragic accident that would forever change her life. As a teenage girl who enjoyed riding horses, and hiking and playing tennis and swimming, and who had ambitions of going to college to become a physical therapist. It was 50 years ago today that she dove into the Chesapeake Bay, not realizing the shallowness of the water, breaking her neck and paralyzing her body from the neck down. She was only 17 years old. If you will look in your bulletin at the insert, there are a number of quotes from Johnny Erickson Tata that I want to direct your attention to. And the first one is her describing her life following her accident. She entered into a season of very severe depression. It is a very difficult paragraph to read, but I commend it to you as we read it together. She writes, there I was lying in the hospital bed in the summer of 1967, desperately trying to make ends meet, desperately trying to turn my right side down, emotions right side up. In my pain and despair, I had begged many of my friends to assist me in suicide. That seems to be a common topic these days, and many disabled people I know even in the 90s, have a tough time finding life worth living. I sought to find a final escape, a final solution through assisted suicide, begging my friends to slit my wrists, dump pills down my throat, anything to end my misery. The source of my depression is understandable. I could not face the prospect of sitting down for the rest of my life without use of my hands, without use of my legs. All my hopes seemed dashed. My faith was shipwrecked. For 17-year-old Johnny, she had lost all hope for a good future. But 50 years later, 
On Johnny's Facebook page, on her cover photo, there is a picture of her with her husband, Ken. And Ken is wearing a shirt that says, Hope Overflowing. What a dramatic contrast. Here is something Johnny wrote just this week about the 50th anniversary of her accident, and her words are full of hope. Again, it's on the bulletin insert. I'm so very grateful for the many blessings this wheelchair has brought my way, including a worldwide ministry to people with disabilities, giving Bibles, wheelchairs, doing retreats for special needs families here in the States and in developing nations. When I see all this, the pain and struggles of quadriplegia have been more than worth it all. She continues, but I'll tell you what's really worth it. I'll tell you why I'm really celebrating this week. It's all about Jesus. There's just no way I would appreciate the man of sorrows and the Lord of joy did I not experience his grace and goodness all these years in my wheelchair. So on this milestone, this anniversary, I thank God for the bruising of the blessing of this chair. I wouldn't want to go back. I wouldn't want to do it all over again. But I'm so grateful. I've gotten this far trusting Jesus. My quadriplegia has shown me that Jesus, oh my goodness, he is more than worth it all. And there is one more thing that I want to read to you from Johnny that I could not resist, including this morning. And she says this, My paralysis has been the sheepdog growling and snapping at my heels, driving me down the road to Calvary where otherwise I might not have gone were I on my feet. My troubles have enriched me with a wealth of knowledge about Jesus, knowledge that couldn't have been gained by any other means. And the same is true for you. So do not grumble against your trials. They are your blessings. And that is written by a woman who has been in a wheelchair for 50 years of her life. Beloved, the story of Johnny Erickson Tata is a story about the hope of God, and that is what this series is all about. It is titled, The Hope of God, Overcoming Spiritual Darkness. In this series, we are considering three main points. The first point we have considered is Roman numeral one on your outline, the reality of spiritual depression, where we have learned that spiritual depression is a reality for God's people, even the godliest of people. In the second point, we have considered Roman numeral two, the causes of spiritual depression, where we have learned that there are a complexity of factors that contribute to depression, like physical and health problems, like painful circumstances in life, like bitterness over wrongs suffered, and like personal sin. And last week, we began to consider our third and final main point, Roman numeral three in our outline, the remedy for spiritual depression. We are developing this third main heading, 
with subpoints, the first two of which we looked at last time. We began with letter A, the meaning of Christian hope, and we said that Christian hope is not merely a wish for something good to happen in the future. It is the absolute certainty that something good will, in fact, happen in the future. The operative word here is certainty. Hope is faith in the future tense. Last time we also looked at letter B, the foundation of Christian hope, and we learned that the basis, the foundation of our Christian hope is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw that the gospel has everything to do with our spiritual depression. The gospel applies to spiritual depression like nothing else can. We saw that because of the gospel, you are never alone in Christ. You have identity in Christ. You are accepted and forgiven in Christ. You are loved for. You are loved and cared for in Christ. You have purpose in Christ, and you have hope in Christ. It is this last point that we will further develop this morning. You have hope in Christ. As a Christian, because of the gospel, you have hope in Christ. You have the absolute certainty of good in your future. And as you think about your hope for the future, there are two aspects that we need to think about. And the first is letter A, if you can find that in your outline, letter A, the hope of future glory. Let's begin by turning in our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. Romans 8, obviously a very familiar chapter in the Word of God, one that we must consider as we think about the great theme of hope, gospel hope. In Romans 8.18, the Apostle Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Right now in this fallen world, Paul outlines our normal experience as the sufferings of this present time. And would you please notice that the word sufferings is plural. There is a plurality of suffering that we experience in this life. There is physical suffering like Johnny Erickson Tata and many other examples could be given. There is spiritual suffering like depression. This is normal in a fallen world. But notice what else Paul says in verse 18, that glory is coming. And so while you suffer, you suffer in hope, with the hope of future glory. The hope of future glory. There is a critical relationship between your present sufferings and your future glory that Paul establishes here. He says one cannot compare with the other. As Paul says elsewhere, the eternal weight of glory is beyond all comparison with the sufferings, the momentary light affliction in this world. And so as you suffer, you anticipate future glory, which far outweighs your suffering. But not only do we anticipate future glory, 
so does the creation itself. And this is in verses 19 through 22. Look at it with me. Verse 19, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Notice the next phrase, in hope. Creation has hope. What is its hope? Verse 21. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So notice how Paul describes creation. It is groaning. It is suffering because of sin. It is a cursed creation because of sin. And it anticipates being set free from its slavery to corruption. And so the great hope is that this life will not always be this way. The sufferings of the present time are likened to the pains of childbirth. Now, what does that mean, the pains of childbirth? Why does Paul describe it that way? Well, it means at least three things in my thinking. Number one, your sufferings are painful. Childbirth is painful. In this life, you should expect suffering, and you should expect that it is going to be painful. Number two, some better news. Your suffering is temporary. It is temporary. The pains of childbirth do not last forever. They only last for a little while. And so when you are overwhelmed with your suffering, remember that your suffering will not last forever. In that way, it is like the pains of childbirth. And then number three, your sufferings will be followed by the joy of glory that is to come. As a mother experiences relief from her pain, And the great joy at the birth of her child, so too you will experience the relief from your pain and the joy of glory when this life comes to an end. And so in these ways, our present suffering is like the pains of childbirth. Now, do you remember last week in our study the key of promise from the book Pilgrim's Progress? The key of promise will unlock any door in Doubting Castle, which will enable you to escape giant despair and his terrible wife gloom. One of those keys of promise is the hope of future glory. And part of our hope of future glory involves the promise of one day receiving a new body, as Paul describes in verse 23, and not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. One day you will receive 
a new body. And that is a part of your hope of future glory. You know who is really anticipating a new body? Johnny Erickson Tata. Look at the next quote from her as she comments on this great hope. It's a wonderful statement. She says, I can't wait for the day when I'm given my brand new glorified body. I'm going to stand up, stretch, dance, kick, do aerobics, comb my own hair, blow my own nose. And what is so poignant is that I'll finally be able to wipe my own tears, but I won't need to. Because the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that God will personally wipe away every tear. There will be no more need to cry. How ironic that finally on the day when I have my hands so I can blow my own nose and wipe my own tears, I won't have to. I look forward to that day. And then she ends it this way. I never used to when I was on my feet. Back to Romans 8 and verses 24 and 25, where we have the, ho- the word hope used five times. Verse 24, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. And so, beloved, you are saved in hope because of the gospel. It is an unseen hope. Right now you do not see glory. Right now you see suffering. But we eagerly wait with perseverance the hope of future glory. Now at this point, an objection could be raised. How sure... And how certain is our hope of future glory? Is it possible that we might lose our salvation along the way? As John MacArthur says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. But you can't because salvation is by grace. And so with that said, look at Romans 8.30, a tremendous verse by the Apostle Paul. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorifies. Here Paul outlines four distinct stages in God's plan for your salvation. And so I ask you, why are you a Christian? What is the ultimate reason for why you are a Christian? The ultimate reason begins with God's sovereign purpose in eternity Past. Notice where Paul begins in Romans 8.30 with predestination. And these whom he predestined. That is to say, before the foundation of the world, God sovereignly and unconditionally chose a people that he would save. He set his love upon that people and he marked that people out as a people that would belong forever to him. From there, Paul moves out of eternity past into time with calling. He says, and these whom he predestined, he also called. This is what theologians refer to as the effectual call of God. And would you notice 
that every one of those whom God predestines, he effectually calls to salvation. And how does he do it? By faith in Jesus, enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is conversion. And from there, Paul moves to justification. He says, and these whom he called, he also justified. And so everyone that God predestines, he also calls in a saving way. And everyone that he calls in a saving way, he justifies. He declares them to be righteous before him in his sight by virtue of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ to the believing sinner. And then from there, Paul moves to the final stage of our salvation in eternity, future glorification. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And so would you notice this tremendous chain? Everyone whom the Father predestines, he calls. Everyone whom he calls, he justifies. And everyone whom he justifies, he glorifies. What does that mean for our security? It means that not one person, not one elect person will fall through the cracks. And so how sure is your hope of future glory? It is guaranteed. It is absolutely certain. And to stress the certainty of your glorification, Paul uses past tense verbs in verse 30. All of the saving acts of God described here are presented as having already occurred, including glorification. Your glorification is as good as done. It is just as sure as your justification. It is just as sure as your calling and your predestination. And so as a Christian, you are given the absolute guarantee of future glory. In chapter 9 and verse 23 of Romans, Paul writes, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. That's us. We are vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. And so God has prepared beforehand that we will enter into future glory. It is guaranteed. It is a certainty. Now, if you were going to write a letter to suffering Christians, what would you say to them? What would you say to them? How would you encourage them? Well, this is what the Apostle Peter did in his first letter. He is writing to suffering Christians, and the first thing that he does to encourage them is to remind them of their hope of future glory. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. And after giving words of introduction in verses 1 and 2, he moves into this doxology in verse 3, which is glorious. He's writing to a group of suffering Christians, and Peter is extolling God. He is blessing God. He is worshiping God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so what is the first thing that Peter tells them? He tells them that they have a living hope. It is a gospel hope. It is a hope that comes from the resurrection of Christ. And then he says in verse 4, to obtain, this is him defining that hope, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You have a living hope in Jesus, which means you have a future inheritance in heaven that will last forever. It is imperishable, it is undefiled, it will not fade away. It is reserved in heaven, and it cannot be lost. In other words, Peter is writing to these suffering Christians, and he is saying to them, as he does later on in the epistle, life is hard, suffering is painful, but glory is coming. Glory is coming. It is guaranteed. And as you well know, after our study of Revelation, you know that the Bible ends with this promise of future glory. Let's turn there for just a moment. Revelation 21, we can't be reminded of this too often. Revelation 21, 3 through 5. This is that great scene of the new heaven and the new earth, the eternal state. And the greatest reality of that eternal state is right here in verses 3 through 5. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Verse 5, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. For now, there are tears. For now, there is death. Now, there is mourning and crying and pain. But, beloved, life will not always be this way. It will come to an end. Those things which cause depression will not last forever. In the future, as we read there in verse 5, God will make all things new. That is a comprehensive statement. All things will be made new. And so, beloved, when you suffer, please remember that there is solid ground for you to stand upon and that solid ground is the hope of future glory. But what about this life? I mean, we're, we're, we're understanding about the hope of future glory, but what about here and now? Do we have hope for something good in this life? And the answer is yes. A second aspect of our hope in Christ is let her be in our outline the hope of present good. We have many promises from God regarding the life to come that are full of hope. We have looked at a few of those this morning. But we also have many other promises from God regarding this life that are full of hope. In other words, God doesn't only promise you good in glory. He promises you good in this life, in the here and now. 
Let's turn to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is an obvious place to turn as we think about the promise of good from God to us in this life. Charles Spurgeon called Psalm 23 the pearl of the Psalms, and that is a great description. This is the pearl of the Psalms, and I want to direct your attention really to one verse, that is verse 6, the last verse where David ends this psalm by saying, surely or only, it could be translated either way, surely or only goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord, how long? Forever. Now most English translations use the word follow as my New American Standard translation does. But the Hebrew verb that David uses here is much stronger than follow. It means to chase after. It means to persecute. It means to pursue. I found two English translations that bear out this interpretation or this translation. The Net Bible and the Christian Holman translation. They both translate this verb as pursue. And that is the better translation, the better rendering. God's goodness and his loving kindness don't merely follow you all the days of your life. They chase after you. They are pursuing you all of the days of your life. And that means not just on the good days, but the bad days. And remember, this is a psalm of David, and he had his share of bad days. And so even on your worst days, you have the promise from God that God, in his goodness and in his loving kindness, is pursuing you. His goodness and his loving kindness are like twin guardians that pursue your every step in this life. And so every day that the Lord gives to you to live in this world, in the here and now, you have the full assurance that God is doing you good every day. And so you can live with the hope of present good, the hope of present good. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that everything that happens to you is good because that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what we experience. For example, when Johnny Erickson Tata broke her neck at the age of 17, that was not good. That was a tragedy. But you have the assurance from the Word of God that God is always pursuing your present good even when bad things happen, even on the worst days of your life. And so let's now leave Psalm 23 and go back to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 and verse 28, where we have one of the most familiar verses in all of the Bible. This is a promise from God. Romans 8, 28. Notice how Paul begins this verse, and we know. He doesn't say, you know, and it's likely. 
or it's possible or that it's very likely. He writes with absolute certainty and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. When you suffer and when your suffering leads to depression, you have the promise from God that whatever is happening in your life, God is using it to accomplish present good in everything that God does in your life. God has a good purpose in it. When Paul says all things work together for good, that is another one of those comprehensive statements. All things includes bad things, it includes painful things, it includes tragic things. And so when those kinds of things happen to you, God has a way of making them to accomplish good in your life, even when you may not be able to see it, perhaps for years. One of the things I love so much about God is his unique ability to accomplish good out of evil. Think about Joseph. God used the tragedy of his brother selling him into slavery to bring about salvation for the nation of Israel in a time of famine. Think about the murder of Jesus. That is the worst crime in the history of the world. It was unjust. It was a murder it was wicked, it was vile, and yet God used the murder of Jesus to accomplish your redemption. And so God has the unique ability to take the most evil of things and accomplish good things in them and from them. This is the assurance that we have in Romans 8.28. Now, sometimes we suffer... Because of things that are outside of our control, things happen to us that we don't invite, that we don't bring upon ourselves. And even when that happens, there is hope. The prime example is Job. Consider Job. Let's turn to the book of Job for a few moments. You know the story very well. We were here in the book of Job a few weeks ago. You know that he lost his wealth. You know that he lost all ten of his children at the same time. You know that he lost his health. And all of these things, all of these tragic things were happening to him at the same time. We looked at Job 3 and verse 1. And we saw that Job cursed the day of his birth. His despair was so great, his pain was so overwhelming that he wished he had never been born. And yet following the lament of Job, we have these statements in the book of Job where we see his hope in God. Job 13 and verse 15. You're familiar with this verse. Job 13, 15, though he slay me, Job talking about God, even if God were to kill me, even if he were to take my life, I will hope in him. I believe that God has a good purpose in everything that he does, even if he kills me. My hope is in God. 
What a magnificent statement. In chapter 23 of Job in verse 10, notice what Job says here about his situation and how it relates to God. But he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. In other words, Job has hope that God has present good in mind in his life. God is making me into spiritual gold, Job says. Therefore, verse 11, my foot is held fast to his path. He's not abandoned God in his suffering. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I love that verse. In his unbelievable suffering, in the misery of Job, he still loved the word of God more than he loved food, more than he loved to eat. How could he do that? Because he had hope in God that God was accomplishing present good in his life, even though he did not understand or know when that would happen. We know when it would happen at the end of his life in chapter 42 of the book of Job. Job 42, beginning in verse 10, we see God restore the life of Job after his misery. Verse 10, Job 42, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. And so God returned to Job what he'd lost and he gave him back twice as much. Verse 11, then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him and they ate bread with him in his house and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him piece of money and each a ring of gold. Verse 12, an amazing statement, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. Verse 13, he had seven sons and three daughters. God gave him 10 more children. Altogether, Job had 20 children. Verse 14, he named the first Jemima and the second Keziah and the third Karen Hapuk. In all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters. And their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his grandsons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. What a wonderful ending to the book of Job. The Lord restored his health. The Lord restored his wealth twofold. He gave him ten more children. He gave him a blessed life. God had good for Job in this life. But what if your suffering is self-inflicted? Job didn't bring this on. These were things that happened to him that were out of his control. 
So what happens if you're suffering is self-inflicted? If it's owing to your own personal sin, is there any hope of good then? What does the Bible say? The answer is yes. Perhaps the greatest example of this in the Bible is the story of the southern kingdom of Judah. As you know, because of Judah's sin, God used the Babylonians to invade their land, to destroy the city of Jerusalem, including the temple in that city, and to bring the Jews into Babylonian exile. This was an exceedingly bitter time, and it was self-inflicted. It was self-inflicted. It was God's judgment against their sin. Let's look at Lamentations chapter 3. This is a small book tucked away right after Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the author of Lamentations. He is the weeping prophet because of the suffering of his people and because of his own suffering as a prophet. And we read about his distress in the opening verses of chapter 3. He says in verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction. Because of the rod of his wrath, he has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. I mean, the suffering of Jeremiah was so awful that it had affected his health, his body, his physical well-being. He, verse 5, has besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. In dark places he has made me dwell like those who have long been dead. Jeremiah is in a dark place in his life. He is in a pit of despair and depression. Verse 15, he continues, He, that is God, has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have no peace. I have forgotten happiness, literally good. I have forgotten tov, that is the Hebrew word for good. I have forgotten good. So I say my strength has perished, and so has my hope. From the Lord. Isn't that an amazing thing? What an admission by, by the prophet Jeremiah. I have forgotten good. My strength is gone. And so is my hope from God. It's gone. He's hopeless in verse 18. He continues in verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. This is a time of affliction. It is a time of bitterness for Jeremiah. Verse 20, surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. His suffering has laid him low. He is humiliated in the sight of God. But then we come to verse 21. And as you come to verse 21, the prophet Jeremiah turns a major corner. It is a dramatic turning in his thinking. He says in verse 21, this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. In verse 18, he has no hope. 
He's lost it. Now, verse 21, I have hope. And what is his hope? Verse 22, this is what he is remembering now. The Lord's loving kindnesses, plural, indeed never cease. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. How often does God have loving kindness and compassion upon his people? Every day it is ongoing. It never fails. Verse 24, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. Verse 25. Verse 31, for the Lord will not reject forever, for if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. What an amazing turn in the thinking of Jeremiah. And so, beloved, even when suffering is self-inflicted, Even if your suffering is brought upon you because of your own sin and you experience the the discipline of God, even in that event, there is hope for good in your future in this life because of the mercy of God, the loving kindness of God. Let me give you one more example of God's present goodness in suffering. This time in Psalm 119. Psalm 119. I will attempt to teach the whole psalm right now. That is a joke. We will just begin in verse 65 and turn all the way to verse 72. So just that one paragraph. Just a little introduction to Psalm 119. You may already be aware of this, but Psalm 119 is an acrostic psalm. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and thus there are 22 paragraphs in this psalm, one paragraph for each Hebrew letter. And in each paragraph, every verse begins with that Hebrew letter. Every verse in verses 65 through 72 begins with the Hebrew letter teth, and I have it printed there on your bulletin insert, teth. It looks like chicken scratch, I know. I remember my first day of Hebrew. I thought, I'll never learn this. It looks like chicken scratch. The key word in this paragraph is tov, which is the Hebrew word for good. And notice that tov begins with that letter, teth. This is the teth paragraph. You don't see this in your English text, but in the Hebrew text, Tov is the first word in five of the eight verses. In verse 65, in verse 66, in verse 68, in verse 71, and verse 72. It is all about goodness, the Tov of God. Look at verse 65. You have dealt well. You have dealt Tov. You have dealt good with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. This is a prayer by the psalmist, and what he is saying is simply this, God, you're good to me. You're good to me. You have dealt tov with me. In verse 68, I love this verse, you are good and do good. God is a good God. That is his character. 
That is his nature. And flowing from his goodness, God acts in goodness. And then in verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. That is a remarkable statement. How often have you said in your life when you encounter suffering, it was good for me that I suffered affliction. I thank God for my suffering. I thank God for that crisis. I thank God for that pain. Now, why is he thankful? Why does he ascribe goodness to his affliction? Not because the affliction in and of itself was good. One day it will perish. All affliction will perish one day. What is good is that he learned something in that season of his life, that I might learn your statutes. This is like Johnny Erickson Tata, isn't it? This is why she can thank God for being in a wheelchair for 50 years. Because of what God has taught her in her affliction. There are keys, there are the keys of promise, or rather these are the keys of promise that will unlock any door in Doubting Castle and allow you to escape from giant despair. The hope of future glory and the hope of present good. There's still much more to say, but we will have to wait until next time. And as we conclude this morning, I want to direct your attention to a final thing for our consideration. It is a portion of a hymn written by William Cooper. His name is spelled C-O-W-P-E-R, but it's pronounced Cooper, like C-O-O-P-E-R. William Cooper was a man who suffered extraordinary depression, extraordinary depression. And yet he wrote some wonderful poems and hymns like There is a Fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood, one that we sing here very often. And then also God moves in a mysterious way. And I was struck this week by reading through this hymn. And I want to just read two stanzas from this hymn, the third and the fifth stanzas. He says this, and this is coming from a man who suffered. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the hope that we have in your Son. We thank you that we have the hope of future glory, that one day everything will be made new, that you will remove all tears and all pain and all mourning and all death, all affliction, all misery. You will give us new bodies. Father, we are grateful for that. We, we realize that the sufferings of this present time are only temporary. And Father, we also thank you for the hope that we have of present good. We thank you for the promise 
that your goodness and your loving kindness pursue us all the days of our life and that we will dwell in your house forever. And Father, we thank you for your unique ability to bring good out of evil and to cause all things that happen in our lives to accomplish good for us. Father, we are so grateful. We are so humbled. Thank you that you are good and that you do good. Father, we are humbled. We love you. We give you our worship. We give you our trust. We put our hope in you. We surrender the entirety of our lives and our plans into your sovereign hand. And we trust that you will continue to do good for us as you have promised. We pray this with grateful hearts in the name of Christ. Amen.